0: It's a little bit cold today uh, by Hawaii standards, so uh, you've got to warm up, you've got to engage, you've got to get the blood pumping, so uh, why don't you do a little uh, faith exhortation, turn to one or two people next to you, and let's say today, God is helping you right now, but you've got to convince them. It's like, no, really, God's helping you, like right now, today. This very day, he's working it out for you. He's working it out. Was that convincing? It made you cry. Awesome. Spirits moving. Do you believe it? Was that good? Like, is your faith up, or is like, eh, eh? Yeah? It's mixed. It's mixed. All right, uh, all right, we'll move on to our warm-up question then, because evidently that didn't have much traction on you. Um, I'll give you eight seconds to think about this. You've got to be very essentialized. You've got to boil it down. What's one word you would choose to describe God? One word. Just be quiet for a second and reflect. One word. You only get one word to describe God that you think captures the most that can be captured with a single word. You can't say Jesus. That's too easy. A different word. All right. Let's hear your answers. One word to describe God. Did it? Limitless. Limitless. <laughs> that's like that's uh, that's like meta. Like well, if I had to. Boil it down, I would say limitless. <laughs> I would say you can't boil it down. Yeah. All right. What else? One word. What's a good one? Love. Love. Not bad. Not bad. Uh, Elena? Cool. Cool. <laughs> cool. I tell you, our youth group is theologically over the top. <laughs> Who was it over here? I so, Yeah. Present. Present. That's not bad. That's not bad. That's pretty good. God is present. I, I, like, I like words like that because it, it forces you to go somewhere, right? One of the places it forces you to go to is, well, if he's present, then he must be helping me right now. So that's interesting. Yep. Compassionate. compassionate not bad at all. Like love, but has a little bit of a, a personality to it. Compassion. Uh, love can be stern or love can be compassionate. Yep. Creator, not bad at all, right? Non-judgmental. N- non-judgmental. Yeah, sure. Interesting. I'll take one more. Jace, is that you? Or is that your mom forcing you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Unstoppable. That's, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, mom approves. Okay, good. Good. You're still on the, on the good boy list for Christmas. Last one. Grace. Not bad. Not bad. I'm interested to see what people would say to that question because, of course, you can pick so many different words. I thought someone would be kind of meta and say Christmas, given the season, but nobody did. Um, nobody said Father, uh, which I was interested to see uh, if that would come up because um, there's a lot about Father. Sons, babies, uh, in, in the Christmas story. I just thought of this one during worship. It's, it, it's, a, it's a little bit related to the first two questions, but uh, it's difficult. I don't know if anybody will have an immediate answer to it. But if you were going somewhere, going for a visit or a trip, or you were expected somewhere, and you needed to tell the people there one thing to prepare the way for you, right? So that when you showed up, it would be as good as possible, whatever that means to you. What would you tell them? You can only say one thing, like one word or one phrase about you. So I'll give you for instance. This isn't exactly what I'm talking about, but I travel a lot to do ministry conferences or missions trips or workshops and stuff like that. And I usually get you know, I I go in response to an invitation, and if Sony and I are handling the details, we are always obligated to say, well, you know, Jordan doesn't eat meat. He's a vegetarian, right? Because what I'm trying to do is avoid the awkwardness situation. I go and somebody makes this lavish steak dinner for me, and I'm like, well, I could eat that, and then vomit all over your carpet. Uh, so we have, we have to say that to prepare the way. That's not like the most essential thing about me, but you get the idea. What do people know, need to know about you in order to receive you appropriately? Anybody have something? It's because you're not vegetarian. <laughs> Nobody has anything. What's something they need to understand about you to receive you Effectively, well, somebody's got to have something. You're a creative crowd. Yeah, Mike. Ticker tape parade. parade. All right, so the thing we need to know about Mike is inflated ego. (laughs) Inflated overestimates. Yeah, all right. Anybody else have one? F? Excitable and over-eager. Fair, fair, that's fair. <laughs> knowing Evan. So I need to know that about you. Evan's coming, he's a little bit excitable. <laughs> and that will help you receive and, and interact with Evan well. Honey, you had one? The difference is that I've it, like, an Airbnb that I can tell <laughs> 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 Say no more, because <laughs> I think you've just demonstrated what people <laughs> need to know about you. Depends on the environment. If it's an Airbnb. Is it a double bed or a queen? <laughs> <laughs> and if they're friends. <laughs> I wouldn't Indecisive. Indecisive. You said it, not me. Moving on. Moving on now. Let's read our scripture for the day. All right. So uh, we're talking about Christmas a lot recently. Because it's a Christmas story. And I've been reading like the literal Christmas story, like from Luke chapter 2, you know, the birth of Christ and all that stuff. I want to actually take one step back, one step earlier, and I want to talk about the preparation for Jesus' coming that God introduced into the world. I want to talk about this guy called John the Baptist. Uh, an, Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe you know this story. He was uh, just about six months older than Jesus. He was Jesus' cousin, as it turned out. Uh, He came in fulfillment to a prophecy, uh, several prophecies, actually, some from Isaiah, some from Malachi, about this guy who had come to prepare the way, for the Messiah. So like before the Messiah showed up, there would be an individual who came just before him in order to prepare people to receive the Messiah effectively and appropriately. Uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, raise up the low places, uh, bring down the high places. Um, that, was, that was his job. He was Jesus' personal herald, Right? sort of his wingman, except he would go before. And so this is how Luke begins the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' life, his birth. Um, He begins actually by telling the story of John the Baptist's coming and John the Baptist's birth. So this is how a way was prepared for the coming of Christ. So we're going to read uh, from Luke chapter 1. I'll start about verse 5 and just read a dozen verses or so. It'll be up on the big board, or you can follow along with your Bible or on your smartphone Bible. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So what he's telling you here is this is a very priestly family. These guys are temple-oriented. They're a member of that class. Uh, Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations, blamelessly good people. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, his priestly division, his team, his ministry team, Once when his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The temple of the Lord was considered a very sacred place, and the interior portion of the temple was considered very sacred indeed, because that's where the presence of the Lord would dwell. And when he came, and so if you were a priest, you didn't go in there very often because if you accidentally encountered too much of a God's presence, you would fall dead. Uh, and so they would send in a priest every once in a while to kind of take care of the lighting, the candles, burning the incense and the honorific stuff. Um, sometimes when they go in, they would tie a line to his ankle so that if he dropped dead, they could pull out the body. That's church for them, so there's a lot to be said for this. I'm generalizing, but that's essentially what was going on. So it was a very special occasion that he got to be the one to go in there. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside, and he would go to this sacred inside place. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So he was one of those guys who encounters a presence there. And it turns out that this is an angelic presence. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Well, you would be. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John. Well, that's unexpected. Not only do you encounter an angelic presence in this holy place, but the thing that this angel wants to talk to you about is the kid that you're going to have miraculously. So interesting. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, uh, which was a tradition, be what's called a Nazarite, sanctified especially for the service to the Lord. Uh, so he never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. That's interesting. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. So he's going to be a revivalist. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, famous Old Testament prophet, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, uh, how can I be assured of this? I'm an old man, my wife is, is well along in years, and the angel goes along to... Say, well, you're going to have the kid, but because you doubted me, you're not going to be able to talk for a while. And the story gets very interesting. But that's where I wanted to stop. The angel comes and tells, says, Zechariah, you're going to have a kid. And he's the one who's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, the spirit of Elijah will be upon him. And this was uh, a signal referred to uh, an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Malachi that said Elijah will come to prepare the way for the Messiah, for the promised Lord. And so when the angel says to Zechariah, the spirit of Elijah will be on your kid, it's as if the angel were saying, this is the one. It's not gonna be Elijah literally, but one on whom the spirit of Elijah rests, the calling, the power of Elijah. One, to prepare the way. I think just that fascinates me. Uh, Because, you know, the Messiah was long-awaited. They'd been waiting for him for centuries in first-century Israel. We know, in retrospect, how special Jesus was, sort of the turning point of world history. But God had to go out of his way to prepare the way, him. As great as Jesus is, it's as if God is saying, yet yeah, he, he needs a little build up <laughs> before he shows. Like, if you're not prepared, you might miss him. Which is surprising if you just take a step back and think of it, because how would you miss the promised one? How would you miss, you know, the savior of the world? But evidently, he would be easy to miss, and therefore, you needed to be prepared. You needed to be aware before he showed up. Um, So this is a passage about, in some sense, about the kind of stuff that would get you prepared, to get you aware enough to receive Jesus effectively and and appropriately. Ended up being very significant, uh, this preparation ministry that John uh, was called to do, uh, because... We know the, how the story went for Jesus. He showed up, lived a really great life, did some really amazing miracles, preached a literally world-changing message. But a lot of people uh, missed him at first, right? Nobody caught him except the shepherds and some magi from a foreign country. And he was deeply, deeply rejected by in, in the end, the majority of people, including at the very end, his friends. Everybody rejected him. So evidently, there was a high likelihood that you would not be prepared, right? Because this guy got rejected to death, right? He was abandoned and turned out. Uh, and so, yeah, preparation ended up being very significant. If you weren't sufficiently prepared, if you weren't in the mind frame to receive what Jesus brought then you killed him black and white binary right? <laughs> so there was a lot at stake in this preparing the way and it turned out that the way was prepared for some people but a lot of people didn't, weren't prepared and they ended up murdering Christ so super significant ministry that, that John had Okay, so what does this passage say about what it takes to prepare the way for Christ? What do you need to have to be prepared for the coming of Christ would be another way to ask the question. Well, we reflect on the qualities that John was given because evidently those were the ones that he needed to manifest in the world. What does the angel tell Zechariah about his kid? this special kid that was going to be born. Well, one thing he says is that the Holy Spirit's going to be on him from birth. So like his whole life is going to be empowered and led by the Spirit. Okay, so that's not too terribly surprising, right? It's cool, uh, but it's not too terribly surprising that this guy would be led by the Holy Spirit of God. Check. We understand that. The angel says to Zechariah, Well, he's never going to drink any wine. In other words, he's going to be on this kind of permanent fast, right? So he's going to do things that set him apart socially, that kind of remind him and everyone else that he's a guy with a special assignment, right? We do a lot of that in our Christian lives, right? We practice things that in and of themselves don't sound like they have great intrinsic value, but they serve to set us apart from the rest of the world as a reminder to us and perhaps to the world as well that we are supposed to be a little bit different than everyone else, right? Some of you practice fasting of different forms. Um, That's a great example of that. Okay, so check that box. We understand it. He's going to be led by this spirit. He's going to be set apart from people, which is healthy for him and healthy for others perhaps. So that makes sense. Um, there's this line in there about uh, preparing people with the wisdom of righteousness it will read a little bit differently depending on your translations that he was going to impart to people in some ways the wisdom of righteousness what is that well the passage does not define the phrase, but to me it sounds a little bit like, well, the, the wisdom of righteousness must be a unique thing. It must be different than the wisdom of unrighteousness or, or you might say the wisdom of, of the world. Uh, I read it as kind of a, what you might call, moral wisdom or spiritual wisdom. This idea that he would remind people that there is a wisdom from God that looks a lot different than the wisdom that is common in the world. You'll have to do things that are otherworldly, you know. For instance, the world says, uh, hate your enemies. And we know that God and Jesus in, in his days of ministry would say, love your enemies. Elena shared about that in a way um, when the girls lit the Advent candle. Um, be generous with your money. Don't worry about your money. That's not very worldly. That's very otherworldly. You know, stuff like that. And John would, in some ways, condition people's minds like, well, there's a, higher, there's a higher truth. All right, so if I'm right, we can check that box. That makes a lot of sense. You know, the one that really leaps out at me, though, is this idea that he would turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Which, is a, uh, which itself is a quote uh, from uh, this very famous prophecy in Malachi, uh, the same one that references the, the spirit of Elijah, from the very last couple of sentences of the very last book of the Old Testament, which is the, the book of Malachi. After Malachi, the prophets would go silent for several centuries, so this is the last word that the Jews had in their holy book. From the prophet Malachi, a prophecy about the coming of the promised one. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Um, so a sort of a, a, a restoration of this Parent child relationship. That always strikes me in this prophecy because if you were preparing the way for Jesus to come, would you put on your list, make sure that parents and kids are getting along? Right? I mean, that one seems a little ordinary compared to like the wisdom of righteousness sanctification from the world, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and make sure your families are getting along. You know, like of all the things the angel could have said and the prophet could have directed centuries before God was thinking about this. Fathers and sons, you know, by implication, you know, could be mothers and sons or mothers and daughters. I mean, clearly there's a parent-child thing going on here. And, And that... That always strikes me as odd. I say this a lot. If you want to understand a piece of scripture, ask yourself, what bugs me about this? And that bugs me. It's like, well, that, I mean, it's good for parents and kids to get along, but really? Should it be on this list of incredibly important things by which the herald makes the way for the coming of Christ? But evidently, God not only thought so, he had been thinking so for many centuries. Uh, previous to that. Why this parental stuff? Why is that super important to preparing in a way for the coming of Christ for that original Christmas? Well, it turns out that if you don't think of God as a father, you don't understand Jesus at all. And I think this is a huge part of the Christmas story and indeed the whole ministry of Christ. When Jesus finally started uh, his public ministry, long about 30 years after Christmas, um, he, uh, he shows up at the River Jordan. John the Baptist is doing baptisms there, and he goes up to John, his cousin, and says, baptize me. And, and John, who kind of realizes who he is, is like, "Ah, maybe you should be baptizing me, dude, because um, you're the one. I'm just, I'm just your go-before guy. And you know how that story goes. Eventually, Jesus talks John into baptizing him. So John baptizes him. Jesus comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. Evidently, Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit from birth like John did, which is just fascinating. And then God speaks from heaven at that moment. You remember what he says? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. You know, so the first pulse of Jesus' public ministry is all right. I want you to understand this guy in terms of he's a child he's my child, sonship and then Jesus goes on from there he he speaks the kingdom of the kingdom of heaven is at hand but if you follow him personally you notice that Jesus had a unique relationship with God he called God what? Father, in particular, he used what word? Abba. Abba. Yeah, a lot of you know this. And Abba means what? Daddy. Daddy. Dad, right? A very familiar form of father. I think this is the most revolutionary thing about Jesus' ministry. Because no one had done that before. And you miss it sometimes because we're used to calling God Heavenly Father. Father in heaven. Why are we used to it? Well, in Christendom, it probably starts with the Lord's Prayer, the most oft-quoted piece of scripture in world history. Uh, One day, Jesus' disciples say to him, Jesus, teach us to pray because you pray to God in a way different manner than we do. And Jesus says, all right, I'll give you a framework. I'll give you a model. When you pray, pray this way. My father in heaven, only it's not father, it's dad, it's Abba. Hey, dad. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done. But really, if you never went beyond the first phrase, hey, dad, um, you would still get it. You would get the rest of it. Like, you need to relate to God as if he's a father, not some... Universal, transcendent cosmic father but like a dad. Everything else uh, flowed from there. And this would tweak the way people saw God because you could see God as a creator. You could see God as limitless. You could see God as transcendent and powerful and and loving you could see him as compassionate, you can see God as a ton of different things, but inco- until you call him daddy i don 't think it really congeals in the proper way. you know because what what are fathers? You could say mothers in a way, but but they 're a little bit different. What are fathers? Well, fathers typically well're they're, they're the disciplinarian, typically totally depends on your family, but you know you know particularly in traditional cultures, they were They were the the disciplinarian, they were the authority, they were the providers, they were the protectors, they were the enforcers, you know, all of that different stuff. But a father is also, well, he's for you, right? right? I mean, you're him, he's you if you're his kid, right? There's an identification and a closeness that really moderates and characterizes all of those strength and power qualities that a dad is supposed to have. You know, dad maybe scares you a little bit, but dad is also reliable, and he's your guy, and he's for you, and you know that. I speak idealistically, because I know a lot of us come from broken families, and this has gotten screwed up in the course of history, right? But but this is the ideal image, the ideal dad. And this is the one thing that Jesus insisted we understand about God. It's like, oh man, even think of him as like this distant heavenly judge or the creator and all this stuff that technically might be accurate to some extent, but what you really need is to conceive of him as your daddy. And until you do, you miss it. You miss it. And then Jesus very, very strictly went about to demonstrate God as the father and just screwed with people's heads a lot because Jesus would, well, he would bend the rules a little bit, wouldn't he? He would bend the religious rules, which really angered the religious authorities of his day to the point that they killed him. But you can do that if God is your daddy, right? Because if he's your daddy, he has rules, but you also kind of have him wrapped around your little finger a little bit. Again, I speak ideally, right? He's totally willing to discipline you. He's able, but like, he's not going to kill you, Right? But the religious authorities of Jesus' day was, oh no, <laughs> like he, 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 God, God does that stuff all the time, you know. And so, are you getting it? Are you getting it? Like, it turns out that if you were not willing to see Creator God as Daddy, Jesus totally made you mad. That if you weren't willing to see Creator God as Daddy, you couldn't receive Jesus at all. You weren't prepared for what he was bringing. And it's not just that you weren't prepared, but you were provoked in a profound way. Whether you were religious or not, I mean, the Jews conspired to kill Jesus, but the Romans did the deed, you know? So everybody rejected uh, Jesus. Anyway, you getting the idea? You feeling what I'm saying? Um, If you expected a a military, political, or religious messiah, you not only missed Jesus, You betrayed and killed Jesus. But if you were conditioned to see Jesus as a father-son demonstration, if you were prepared for that, then you received Jesus, you honored him, you extended his mission. He made a major difference in your life. Black and white. And it all has to do with this father-son thing. So what I'm suggesting is that you understand the Christmas story this way. God could have engineered the universe any way he wanted. He could have unfolded the story of his purposes on earth any way he wanted. If redemption was needed for the the human race, he could have engineered a system of redemption any way he wanted, because he's the guy that makes the rules. What he did is that he sent a child. And he said, this is my son. He'll tell you that I'm his father. That's the plan. That's the way I've chosen to do it. And God needed a son because the only way you see somebody as a parent is if that person has a kid. That's why. That's why. And so he needed someone who was manifestly his kid in a way that normal humans couldn't be, right? Because we didn't have the hang of it yet. We saw him as an authoritarian. Jesus came and said, no, I see him as a daddy. Now you can see God as a father. That was the Jesus plan at its core, in its essence. And that's really what Christmas is about, in its essence. And we like it that there's a Christmas baby, because babies are accessible. We talk a lot about he came as weak, what a vulnerable, humble guy. But the main thing was that he came as somebody's kid. And that we were supposed to understand God in this Father-Son way. Um, in order to see God as a Father, we need to see someone as His child. And having seen Jesus as His child, well, then maybe we can see of us as His children. And indeed, the planet changes as people understand that more and more. And the whole Christmas story is filled with babyhood, isn't it? Right. And there's Jesus's babyhood. There's John the Baptist's babyhood. I mean, it's like babies everywhere. Um, After uh, the rumor about Jesus' Messiahship got out, well, Herod just killed all the babies, right? So the immediate attack of the world against the plan of God was to murder babies, was to destroy children. And I think, in essence, that's been the plan against Christianity, what we call Christianity, ever since. Like, if you want to disrupt the plan of God, destroy families. That is the number one thing you can do. Because the number one thing you need to understand about God is daddyship. And so if you want to stop the purposes of God, destroy all manifestations of familyship on the planet. Any way you can. Any way you can. Um, All of this comes to, you know, an application point uh, for me uh, in this Christmas season as I meditate on wonders like this. Um, if you want to prepare the way for Christ to come, and you could say, if you want to prepare the way for Christ to come in your life, but we've been thinking a lot about spreading the kingdom on earth, about like spreading the message of Christ and gathering people into the kingdom. So let's phrase it this way. If you want to prepare the way for Christ to come into the life of others, What do you do? Well, I mean, you could tell them all about Christ or God, but if they're not prepared, they will not receive it. So how do you prepare the way? Well, you prepare the way by means of what you might call the family spirit. Right? You have to make sure that they're kind of in, this is the wrong way to say it, but they're, they're kind of in a family mindset. They're in a a family way, although that typically means something else when we say it, right? But that they're, they're understanding family love. They're understanding... Um, how else would you say it? What words popped your mind? They're understanding how a child reacts to a parent and how a parent should respond to a child. Like They're, they're kind of in that space. And if they're in that space... And you say, Jesus, or Christmas, then. And to the degree that people celebrate Christmas instinctively, I think this is what they're celebrating, right? Uh, Joyeux Noël um, in 1914 when uh, the French and the Germans spontaneously paused the war that's what this movie is about. The soldiers just spontaneously stopped shooting on Christmas, got out of their trenches, shared cigars, brandy, and chocolate, and then the next day went back to killing each other. Um, but they realize we should probably behave like a family. <laughs> just, just for a second. Let's do that. All right, that's done. Um, they were forced to. Um, but, but people like this, there's something instinctive in us about it. Anyway, so what I'm saying is, if you want to spread the message, spread that. Be family in a manifest and powerful way. And I don't mean, I mean be a family. So I've been thinking a lot about the difference between um, the family spirit and what you might call the civic spirit. You know you know what I mean by that? Sort of like civic responsibility. Be a good community member, be a good neighbor, or, or, I don't know, social virtue as opposed to family virtue, which is a little bit different, right? A little bit different. And I think the world is obsessed with social virtue right now and absolutely starved for family virtue. Don't understand it. I think they're so obsessed with social virtue. The way they're obsessed with social virtue is causing them to destroy family virtue. I think I see a lot of that in the world today, if you follow me. If you don't, no worries. Um, how How do you do that, right? How do you turn the hearts of parents to children. How do you turn the hearts of children to parents? Well, you got to model it. you got to model it with your parents and your children, whether biological or otherwise, you know. But you need to figure out how to show it. And if you can have that in your life and invite somebody into it, into your holiday or to your church, to your Christmas Eve service or whatever, Um, I think we do that decently well at Blue Water, actually. When people come to, like, the Christmas concert, they're like, wow, you know, the music was great, but you guys, you know, I hear that a lot. It's like, these people are just so dot, 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 and then, like, they don't know how to fill in the blank, but I think it's like, well, the way you treat each other. The way you treat each other. is kind of what they're saying, because we should treat each other like family. Um, And and, uh, we're decently good at that. You know, decently good at it. Um, Jesus said, quite famously, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Like It's like, all over the world, every person loves somebody, (laughs) you know. But the way you guys do it Shows something different. What does it show? Well, it shows ownership. It shows that you're for someone. It shows that, yeah, we're into discipline. We're into standards, but we also bend and we embrace anyway. You know. So uh, I'm kind of a technically minded person. I'm tempted to, you know, really parse words carefully and give you very formulaic ways of demonstrating the family spirit. But I think that would totally ruin the family spirit, right? It's like, you guys know, even if you've never experienced it in your respective families, you know what it's supposed to be like. And if you can spread that in the world and then preach Jesus, Christmas, right? People will be prepared and people will receive. So that's what I'm preaching today, and I'm sticking to it. There you go. Father uh, God, I pray that you would indeed be Father God. Um, I've been calling you that my whole life, hoping to understand it and to experience it fully. Father God, Dad. Well, I bless you, brothers and sisters. With the present God, with the presence of Jesus, in this Christmas season, but the presence of the Jesus who was the son come to demonstrate family spirit with God, to demonstrate family spirit with God. Uh, We pray um, eagerly, Lord, for the family spirit with God here in this house of faith. Uh, That we, uh, uniquely in the world, would perceive it. That we would perceive the wisdom of this particular righteousness. And that even now, you would turn our hearts toward our children. And that as children, our hearts would be turned toward our parents. Biological or otherwise. That we would honor those who have gone before, and we would honor those who come after, but not in a civic way, in a family way, as is appropriate to those who follow Christ. And having done that, Lord, I pray that your message and your power would flow for us, through us this Christmas season. I bless you, brothers and sisters, to the agents of Christmas, this Christmas, that is explained to us, In this passage, in Christ's name, amen.